Okay. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Welcome to Let Us Attend, number seven. Welcome back from the break, which we had last week. Well, uh, yeah, last week. So two weeks ago, in Let Us Attend, Know the Liturgy, number six, we spoke about the beginning of the Anaphora, which is on page 184. So just make sure you have a handout, which can be found at the back, as well as a liturgy book, or your liturgy book. So we spoke about how in the Anaphora we have this dialogue between the priest and the people where the priest says, the Lord be with you all, and then we respond, and with your spirit. He then asks us to lift up our hearts, and we say that they are with the Lord, they being our hearts. And then the priest says, let us give thanks to the Lord. We looked at it in Greek, which sounds like Eucharist. So in other words, the priest is saying, let us Eucharist. Because Eucharist means thanksgiving. And the people respond, it is meet and right, or it is right and worthy. In other words, yes, please go ahead and Eucharist, please go ahead and give thanks. So he begins to give thanks. What's the first thing that the priests give thanks for? Creation. He talks about the creation of the whole world. We spoke about creation of the world out of nothing last time, ex nihilo. He talks about creation of the heavenly hosts. And then we got up to page 186. After you are he around whom stand the cherubim, etc. So we're going to look at the next part. But before we do that, if we just realize, at the beginning of the anaphora, he said, let us give thanks to the Lord. And then what does he do? He gives thanks to God for creation, for the angels, the archangels, all the heavenly hosts. He then, as we're going to go through now, recounts the story of salvation, who formed us, created us, and placed us in the paradise of joy, was incarnate, rose from the dead. So he's thanking God for salvation. And then he recounts the institution of the Eucharist, which we call the institution narrative, which will be next time, where he looks at, he took bread, he broke, he tasted, he gave to his holy disciples saying. So he thanks God for instituting the Eucharist. Then we have the litanies, peace of the church, the, um, the pope, the servants, etc., the salvation of the world, etc. So he's thanking God for all these things. The commemoration of the saints and the commemoration of the departed. So he's thanking God for all these. And then he says, lead us throughout the way into your kingdom. He's thanking God for leading us throughout the way into his kingdom. And then at the end, he says, again, let us give thanks to God, the Pantocrator, the Father of our Lord, God and Savior, Jesus Christ, for, do you remember? Right before the fraction. That's at the beginning, for the protection is just the beginning. For he has made us worthy. Okay? So we see two, it's like he's emphasizing the word thanksgiving, let us give thanks to the Lord, at the beginning of the anaphora, and at the end of the anaphora he says it again. Again, let us give thanks. And then in the middle we have everything that he's giving thanks for. It's like, let us give thanks to the Lord, thank for everything. And then at the end, again, let us give thanks to the Lord. Following that, we have the fraction and communion. So from after that, we could include that into just one big heading, which is fraction and communion together. So the bulk of the liturgy, that middle part, is called the Eucharist. And like we said last time, the Eucharist could refer to the liturgy itself. It refers to Thanksgiving, and it refers to the gifts, which are the holy body and the precious blood of Christ. So it's nice to see Thanksgiving at the beginning, Thanksgiving at the end, and then everything that we're thanking for in the middle. Page 186. After the priest says, you are he around whom stand the cherubim full of eyes and the seraphim with six wings, praising continuously without ceasing, saying, dash. 
So it's like he, he's recounted those angels and he's saying, they say something. Now, before, it makes sense for him to say, without ceasing saying, and then to say that thing, or for you to say that thing, right? So without ceasing saying, and for either him to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, or for you to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But there's something in the middle which interrupts that flow. Can you identify it? Let us attend. So it's like the deacon's interrupting, and he's saying, it's like proclaiming and saying, and the deacon comes out of nowhere and goes, let us attend. So we realize whenever the deacon says, let us attend, attend meaning, let us be attentive to what's at hand. Let our minds, hearts, and bodies be attentive to what's about to happen. The first time we heard it is before the creed, and Sophia, in the wisdom of God, let us attend. And then you say the creed, like the deacon saying, wake up, you're about to say the creed. Before the anaphora, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, etc. And the last thing he says is, let us attend, because the priest is about to say, the Lord be with you all. And then he says it now again, let us attend, why? Because you're about to sing the hymn, which is sung in heaven by the angels, which we'll read about in Isaiah. Okay? The people reply, the cherubim worship you and the seraphim glorify you, proclaiming and saying. That's a, the older version, the oldest version, I think, doesn't have the cherubim worship you. It just has the hymn. So what's the hymn? Holy, 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 Lord of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory and honor. So let's look at our handouts. So remember, we were looking at St. Cyril of Jerusalem for the last few weeks. He has a beautiful catechesis, which he used to give to those who are being baptized after they're baptized. So remember we said they get baptized and then they learn about the liturgy. So it's a whole taste and see. Experience the liturgy, then we'll talk about it. Okay? So after they used to get baptized on the Feast of the Holy Resurrection. And then for a week after, he'll have more teachings and he'll teach them about what happened in the liturgy, and what happened in baptism. So this is 4th century. So you could see the similarities between what was happening back then and today. Let's read. He says, After that we call to mind the heavens, the earth, the sea, the sun, the moon, visible and invisible, angels and archangels. We call to mind also the seraphim whom Isaiah in the Holy Spirit saw encircling the throne of God, with two wings veiling their faces, and with two their feet, while flying with two and saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts. So this is a witness to the fact that in the 4th century we were saying that, and even before we were saying that. He says, We recite this doxology, which comes to us from the seraphim, we'll see that in a second, that we may be sharers of the hymnody of the heavenly hosts. So remember how we said in the liturgy we believe that we're in heaven? Not metaphorically or symbolically, but literally. So he's emphasizing that. He's saying we're saying this because we're in heaven. And what do the seraphim do in heaven? They say this. So let's say it with them. So how do we know the seraphim say that? Book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. In, that year that King Uz- in the year that King Uzziah died, I, being Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and you could see this in the icon below. And there's the icon below, and faded is the priest holding the chalice, trying to draw the link between what we're about to read. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one seraphim, but it doesn't say seraphim, but it says, and one cried to another and said, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So we are just pretty much repeating what the seraphim said because we are in heaven. And what did the seraphim do in heaven? They say that. So what do we do in heaven? We say the same praise. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongues from the altar, tongues from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away. A prophecy of? Any guesses? Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away. What's he talking about? Zechariah. He took coal from the altar and put it on his mouth. Communion. Okay? Hence why we have the icon there. This icon is found in the church of St. Athanasius at Donval, in the altar, for that purpose. And you could see the priest holding the chalice there, but it's faded out, a bit of a photography effect there. Okay? It's faded out to sort of draw the parallel between that account, those verses, and the Holy Eucharist. Okay? If we read, sometimes... Deacons would hold fans. At St. George's Church, they have the fans. They used to use them ages ago. It's pretty much like a, imagine a wooden stick that, that high, that, that long, sorry, piece of cloth that comes out of it and they hold it and they wave it. Sometimes to remove, um, if, if there's a fly flying around or something, a woman will call it. But apparently, they used to use it at that time. The deacons used to use it. Why? Father Tadros Moloti tells us. At this moment, the two deacons who are serving with the priest would move their feather fans as a sign that the angels are present around the altar. St. John Chrysostom says that the deacons themselves represent the angels. Okay? Father Alexander Schmemann talks about this part of the liturgy where we sing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of Hosts. This, it's singing, it being this hymn. So the singing of this hymn within the Eucharist pra- Eucharistic prayer signifies the heavenly character of the Eucharist. And it means that the church has ascended with Christ and offers his Eucharist in the new aeon or in the new age of the kingdom. We sing the angelic hymn because we stand with the angels, and angels mean heaven, the presence of God and his ineffable glory. The supreme and highest point of the service has now been reached, that of the total ascension, the complete acceptance of the church into the heavenly sanctuary, the movement of sacrifice and adoration has reached its fulfillment. So in other words, we are in heaven, literally, hence we sing this hymn. So it's important to remember that while you're singing this hymn, you are in the presence of many, 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 many seraphim who are also singing this hymn. Germanus of Constantinople, 7th century, I believe. I know after we split from the Chalcedonians, but I thought it's a nice reference. He says, Then again... The priest declares to God the Father the mysteries of the incarnation of Christ, his ineffable and glorious birth from the Holy Virgin, his crucifixion, his death, and the liberation by him of the souls in bondage, his holy third day resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the heavens, his enthronement at the right hand of the Father, and his second coming again in the future for us. So he's describing what we're just about to read now. Okay? So we are on page now 187. 
So we just said holy, holy, holy. Lord of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory and honor. The priest then starts by saying holy, holy, holy three times himself. Agios, and it has a long tune. The first time he crosses himself. The second time he crosses the deacons next to the altar. And the third time he turns around and he crosses the people. This is the last time that the priest himself will cross the people. After that, he places the altar on the cross. Uh, the, the cross on the altar, sorry. And he continues the liturgy. Now, the next part, he recounts the history or the story of salvation. Okay, in the liturgy of St. Basil, it's three parts. Let's just read it without tune and see if it makes a difference if we just read it. Holy, 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 indeed, O Lord our God, who formed us, created us, and placed us in the paradise of joy. And when we disobeyed your commandment by the deceit of the serpent, we fell from eternal life and were exiled from the paradise of joy. You have not abandoned us to the end, but have always visited us through your holy prophets. And in the last days, you did manifest yourself to us, who were sinning in darkness in the shadow of death through your only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, who of the Holy Spirit and of the Holy Virgin Mary was incarnate and became man and taught us the ways of salvation. He granted us the birth from on high through water and spirit. He made us unto himself an assembled people and sanctified us by your Holy Spirit. He loved his own who were in the world and as a ransom on our behalf gave himself up unto death which reigned over us whereby we were bound and sold on account of our sins. He descended into hate through the cross. He rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended into the heavens and sat at your right hand, O Father. He has appointed a day for recompense on which he will appear to judge the world in righteousness and give each one according to his deeds. Now, when you read it like that, it reads like a story. Okay? Just one long story. From when he created us until when he will judge the world. Okay? Let's stop and look at that. Anyone realize any interesting things about the structure of that? Maybe even grammatically? I'll give you a clue. It's at the bottom of page 188. Exactly. It's like an incomplete sentence. Imagine if I'm talking to you and I go, and I go, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, who was incarnate, who, sorry, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, who of the Holy Spirit and of the Holy Virgin Mary, and I stop, you'll be like, yeah, and? Keep going. I was supposed to say, was incarnate, but what happens, the people like interject, and they say, amen. What does amen mean? So be it. This is true. Amen, you know? So it's like they're saying, yes, what you're about to say is important. What's important? Well, what just came before it? He was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. Or what was right before it, sorry? Sorry, the Holy Spirit of the Holy Virgin Mary, and after it, he was incarnate and became man. It's like the people are affirming, yes, I mean, we believe that this is true. Okay? So, let's read what Father Alexander Schmemann has to say about some of this. So, in this part, he, the priest recounts the story of salvation. So, like we were saying before, if I never came to Sunday school ever, 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 and I read this part properly, I paid attention, I will get the history of salvation. Okay? Let's read Father Alexander. God has being, so in himself he has being, but we were created out of nothing like we said last week. We have no right to existence other than the free will of God and his love. So we said last time that God created us out of nothing, which means that it was an act of complete love, complete selflessness, complete freedom. We thank him for his love, which has created us, 
filled us with life, made us capable of enjoying it, enjoying it being life. In one sentence, we embrace the whole of life with all its endless possibilities. We look at the world with the eyes of Adam, which were, what, what eyes are we talking about? Eyes which saw the world created, which saw the created, um, sorry, eyes of Adam created out of the earth and placed in paradise as the king of creation. We had fallen away from God and therefore away from true life, from joy and communion, into the hell of death, distortion, separation, the war of all against all. So we were created to be in communion with God when we ate of the tree, or when Adam ate of the tree, we were now fallen away from God, away from true life, from joy and communion, and the consequence of that was death. And if you look at the liturgy, it talks about that as death. O God, the great, the eternal, who formed man in incorruption, and death which entered into the world. It talks about death. But God has raised us up again, has restored us. This one word embraces the whole history of salvation. The slow and patient action of divine love preparing the prodigal child for the return to his father. The election of Abraham, the promise of salvation, the slavery of Egypt, the exodus, the covenant, the law, the prophets, the painful and endless clarification of conscience and its education prepare for the ultimate event. So, you know how he says, you have not abandoned us to the end? It's what we're talking about. Okay? The eruption into time and history of the kingdom of God in the person of Christ, the Son of God, who for us men and for our salvation becomes the Son of Man. The restoration of man to his original beauty and freedom, the victory over sin and death and forgiveness. That restoration was more than forgiveness. Christ, the new Adam, did more than restore in us the primitive Adam. So other denominations look at the story of salvation and just stop at forgiveness. But it's more than that, especially in the Orthodox Church, and we emphasize this. What do we mean? We'll read it here. So the restoration was more than forgiveness. Christ, the new Adam, did more than restore in us the primitive Adam. He united our human nature with his divinity, and having transformed and glorified it, he ascended with it to heaven. And on the day of Pentecost, he granted to men the new life of the kingdom of God. That is, the knowledge of God, communion with God, participation with the new age. For what this world is still only for future, the kingdom to come has been given to the church as the very essence of her life. The paroseo, or the coming of the presence of God. So in that last part, he's trying to say, people are waiting for the second coming. We could, we could taste that right now on earth as Christians. Why? Because of the saving act of God. So if we just look at the first part on page 188, we see that the um, priest recounts that we were formed and created and placed in the paradise of joy. So we were, we were created and placed in the paradise of joy. We disobeyed the commandment by the deceit of the serpent. Sure, we were tempted by the serpent, but it was our call to make. So when we sin, it's my fault, not the devil's fault. The devil tempts me, but I'm the one who makes the decision to sin. What happened when we did that? Look at the language. We fell from eternal life. It's all talking about life and death. We fell from eternal life and we're exiled. When you say the word exile, it means that the person is probably going to return. It's not permanent. It's like you're exiled, you're sent away, and you could come back. So this is what happened in Genesis. And then the priest says, but you didn't leave us. It's not like we were exiled and you said, God said, all right, I don't want to have anything to do with you. No. He didn't leave us. He didn't abandon us to the end, but he's visited us through his holy prophets. 
And in the last days, the fullness of time, incarnation, you, being God, manifested yourself to us who were sinning in darkness in the shadow of death. So God manifested himself to us who were sinning in darkness in the shadow of death through Jesus Christ. He says this here. Through your only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God manifested himself to us who were sitting in darkness in the shadow of death. You know the thing about a shadow? It follows you everywhere. The death was following us wherever we go. Whatever happens, we're destined to die. So what does he do? We're sitting in this shadow of death. God manifests himself to us through Jesus Christ. And then it, what about Jesus Christ? Look what it says. Jesus Christ, who of the Holy Spirit and of the Holy Virgin Mary was incarnate and became man. And taught us the ways of salvation. What's this ways of salvation? We'll find out. He granted us the birth from on high through water and spirit. What's that? Baptism. He made us to, unto himself an assembled people, church, and sanctified us by the Holy Spirit. He loved his own who were in the world. And as a ransom on our behalf, gave himself up unto death, which reigned over us. Look at the language. Death reigned over us. It's all about death. When Adam sinned, we were sentenced to death. He said that. For the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Whereby we were bound and sold on account of our sins, he being Christ, descended into hate through the cross. Let's read from Abuna Athanasius Iskander from Canada. He actually has a really nice book on the liturgy. It's a nice contemplation. You could Google it. Father Athanasius Iskander Liturgy. Man exercising his free will that was granted to him by God disobeyed God's command and thus fell from eternal life and lost his immortality. Although salvation was offered to us freely by God, yet it is up to each one of us to work for his or her salvation. Some Christian denominations say you are already saved. We say we are being saved. Yes, Christ did die for us on the cross, but I need to participate in that. I need to accept that. We, and the word that we use for that is synergy, and we'll come to that. The free will, which led man to his fall from grace, has to be exercised in synergy with the grace of God in effecting man's own salvation. So synergy is us working with God. There's one extreme that says it's all grace, another extreme which says it's all works. The orthodox way is synergy. Us and God working together. The perfect icon of that is the icon of the Annunciation. Why? Because Archangel Gabriel came to St. Mary like, telling her the Annunciation and she accepted. That's St. Mary and God working together. Human and God working together. Synergy. Okay? God in his wisdom has offered us several ways that lead into salvation. One way may be suitable for the one, but not for the other and vice versa. So we're not all supposed to be photocopies of each other. Someone once said, God's not going to ask you why you're not St. George or St. Anthony or the Virgin Mary or St. Damiana. He's going to ask you why you're not Mina, why you're not Mark, why you're not Diana. You have to be you. One person may find the way to salvation through celibacy, another through holy matrimony, another through martyrdom, and yet another through ordination. Whatever way one may pursue to work out his or her salvation, there are certain sacraments that the Lord has granted us to help us attain our goal of the salvation of our souls. The first is baptism, the birth from on high through water and spirit. 
Unless, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So of the seven main sacraments in our church, of the seven sacraments, the compulsory ones are baptism, chrismation, or the Holy Mayron, Holy Chrism, the Holy Eucharist, and the sacrament of repentance and confession. They're the essential, non-negotiable ones. Then you've got the other three, which are optional. Marriage, unction of the sick, don't have to have, but the church has included into its rituals, and ordination into the priesthood. The church teaches that after our Saviour gave up the ghost, or the spirit, his human soul united to his Godhead descended into hell, the prison where the souls of Adam and all his children were kept in the bondage of the adversary. There the Lord freed Adam and those of his children, who were counted righteous under the Mosaic law and brought them with him to paradise. So all the righteous people in the Old Testament were waiting in hates for God to come and to take them to paradise. And there's a beautiful icon of that. I don't know if you've seen it, where Christ is standing over um, two tombs, crossed like that, in the shape of the cross, and, on one, and he's holding the hands of Adam and Eve. Do you, have you seen that cross? And there's a cross behind him. That's actually the real icon of the resurrection. Well, there's a cross behind him and he's resurrected. He's taking Adam and Eve up from Hades. Okay? There are many biblical allusions to this. For St. Peter tells us that Christ also has once suffered for sins, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. St. Paul also tells us, Wherefore he said, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended... What is it that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? When we say Christos Anesti, we say Christ has risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs, granting eternal life. That's the hymn of victory that we sing in the Holy 50 Days. So he's recounted the story of salvation. And then, if we keep reading, so we finished up. He descended into hate through the cross. He rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended into the heavens and sat at your right hand, O Father. He has appointed a day for recompense on which he will appear to judge the world in righteousness and give each one according to his deeds. Then we respond a nice prayer. Let it be according to your mercy, O Lord, and not on account of our sins. Amarteias comes from a Greek word called amarteia, which means missing the mark. This is on the back page. Have you got that? On the back page of your handouts? Missing the mark. So the word for sin in Greek is amartia, which means missing the mark. When an archera misses the mark. So what's sin? Missing the mark. Sin is a disease where we miss the mark. So what's our mark? To be Christ-like. So Christ is pure. Anything impure is sinful because I miss the mark of purity. God is truth. Any lying, for example, is sinful because I miss the mark of lying. God is love. Anything that I do that is unloving is sinful because I miss the mark of truth. Of love, sorry. Okay? So it's interesting how we say the word amartya, which literally means when an archer misses the mark. All right. Before we go on into investigating one of these aspects that we've spoken about, 
in detail, like we always do. We usually find one or two words or sentences, as an ex and we use that as an excuse to talk about something that we usually wouldn't dedicate a whole youth meeting to. Before we do that, um, let's have a look at the story of salvation as told in the liturgy of St. Gregory. It's a bit more detailed, and it's very beautiful. It can be found on page 271. Okay, so remember, look at the language of St. Gregory here. He's addressing Christ directly, so it says you. In the liturgy of St. Basil, Basil, we address the Father, so when we talk about Christ, we say he. Let's read. Holy, 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 o, ho, sorry. Holy, holy, O Lord, and holy are you in everything, and most excellent is the light of your essence. Ineffable is the power of your wisdom, and no manner of speech can measure the depth of your love toward mankind. So if you look at creation out of nothing, the story of salvation it is one huge love story. It's hard to look at that and not say God loves me. Look at, how, look at creation out of nothing. God created all of us out of complete selflessness, freedom and love. The story of salvation, God could not bear to see us separate from him. So he died for us so that we could live with him forever. Now sometimes we miss that when we emphasize God dying on the cross to pay the price. If we only focus on that, we miss the bigger picture. Okay? A whole different topic. You, as lover of mankind, have created me as man. You had no need of my servitude, but rather I had need of your lordship. In other words, you didn't need to create me, like we were saying last time. Because of the multitude of your tender mercies, you brought me into existence when I was not. So I never existed. I was created out of nothing. Because you're so merciful and loving, you brought me into existence. You have raised heaven as a roof for me and established the earth for me to walk upon. For my sake, you have bound the sea. For my sake, you have manifested the nature of animals. For you have subjected all things under my feet. You have not left me in need of any of the works of your honor. You are he who formed me and laid your hand upon me and inscribed in me the image of your authority. We'll come back to that. You have placed in me the gift of speech and opened for me paradise to enjoy and have given to me the learning of your knowledge. You have manifested to me the tree of life and made known to me the sting of death. Beautiful love story. Recounting what God has did for us. You know, he created us right at the end, after everything was prepared. And like we said last time, he didn't have to make the earth pretty, but he did it out of love for us. So it's a one huge love story. Massive love story, okay? Look what he says, like, you've um, raised heaven as a roof for me. He says me. That's personal. To each of us, it's personal. For my sake, you have done this. For me, 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 me. All loving. Then, of one plant have you forbidden me to eat. That of which you have said to me, of it only do not eat. So you could have eaten from any other tree. Just don't eat of this one. But according to my will, I did eat. So we have free will. That's why the tree was there. If God didn't put the tree in the garden, then there would have been no way for Adam and Eve to leave the garden, which means they're forced to be in the garden. If they're forced to be in the garden, they're not free. If they're not free, then God doesn't love them. Now, love isn't a characteristic of God. God is love. We don't say God is, is loving or can be loving. No, he is love. So it goes against who he is to do anything unloving, such as remove freedom. Me and you each have a choice to love. 
I could love or I could hate. But God is love in his being. He is love, which means that he doesn't have the option of removing freedom. That's why the tree has to be there. Look what we say. I put your law behind my own counsel and became slothful toward your commandments. I plucked for myself the sentence of death. So in St. Gregory's liturgy, it's a much more detailed account. So, it talks, so the priest here is talking about how God created us and how we did the damage. Then he goes back after we say, Lord, have mercy, and shows how loving God is. You, O my, o my master, have turned for me the punishment into salvation. As a good shepherd, you have sought after that which have gone astray. As a true father, you have travailed or journeyed with me, I who had fallen. You have bound me with all the remedies that lead to life. Eucharistic reference as well. Remember we said the Eucharist is the medicine of immortality. Christ is the true physician. You are he who has sent me the prophets for my sake. I the sick. Look at the theme here. Remedies, sick. Sin is a disease. We are sick. We come to be healed by God. You have given me the law as a help. As a help. You are he who ministered salvation to me when I disobeyed your law. As a true light, you have shone upon the lost and the ignorant. Lord, have mercy. Then he keeps going. O you, the being throughout all time, have come to us on earth. You have come into the womb of the virgin. You, the infinite being God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied yourself. A reference to Philippians. And took the form of a servant and blessed my nature in yourself and fulfilled your law on my behalf. You have shown me the rising up from my fall. You have given release to those who are in Hades. You have lifted the curse of the law. You have abolished sin in the flesh. You have shown me the power of your authority. You have given sight to the blind. You have raised the dead from the tombs. You have established nature by the word. You have manifested to me the economy of your tender mercy. Economy is a fancy word for plan. Okay. You have borne the oppression of the wicked. You have given your back to the scourge. So when Christ was whipped on his back. Your cheeks you have left open to those who smite, who were slapped on his cheeks. For my sake, O my master, you have not hidden your face from the shame of spitting. Beautiful love story the whole way through. You've created me, I did this, then you came after me, and you have done this, this, that. And he concludes that section by saying, the part that hurts, and for my sake, you were slapped on your cheek, you were whipped, etc., you have come to the slaughter as a sheep, even to the cross. You have manifested the greatness of your care for me. You have slain my sin in your tomb. You have brought my first fruit up to heaven. You have shown me the manifestation of your coming, wherein you shall come to judge the living and the dead and give each one according to his deeds. And then, according to your mercy, O Lord. Beautiful, huh? Such a lovely passage. Such a lovely prayer, especially when we just stop and actually focus on it. All right, so in the remaining time, which is approximately about 20 minutes, maybe even less, let's have a look at us being created in the image and likeness of God. Last time we looked at creation of the world out of nothing. Today we just read the word image. We also read when the priest says, who formed us, created us, and placed in the paradise of joy. We read in Genesis that we were created in the image and likeness of God. What does that mean? Okay. So, if I could just borrow this.
in your handout under the heading created in the image and likeness of God I've put something in italics which sort of sums up part of this the image denotes the person's potentiality for life in God and likeness his or her destiny and realization of that potentiality so we were created in the image and likeness of God when we fell a lot of fathers say that we lost the likeness. Okay? Some people don't distinguish between image and likeness, but a lot of the fathers say that we lost the likeness, but we retained the image. It might have, some people say the image is a bit distorted, but it hasn't been lost. So we'll say we retained the image, but we've lost the likeness. We're going to talk about what that means right now. Okay? Let's read from Metropolitan Callisto Swear. What does it mean to be in the image of God? The first, there's a diff, the Bible hasn't given us a definitive list of what it means to be in the image, but the fathers have interpreted that. Some fathers interpret it in a longer list than others, but this is nice, what Callistus Ware has outlined for us. He said four things. Relationship, growth, self-awareness, freedom. So since we are created in the image of God, we have the potential for relationship, growth, self-awareness, freedom. Other things that he didn't write is something like creativity. Okay? God is creative, we're created in His image, we are also creative. But not in the same way He is. Because we're an image, not an identical replica, an image. So God is absolutely creative, which means He could create out of nothing. But we don't create out of nothing, we create out of something. We get paint and we make something. We um, get materials and we sculpture something. But what about music? Some people say music has a special place because it's like it has the illusion that it's created out of nothing. So some people say music has a special place in the creative world, which is nice. So being created in the image of God means that we are, we're relational beings, we can grow, we're rational, we're self-aware, we have a consciousness, and we have freedom. I want to focus on relationship today in, in this time. Let's read, it's a bit long, but as you know, I have a bad habit of not being able to cut out certain quotes. Okay? To be created in the image means that we are created for fellowship and communion with God. And if we repudiate or reject that fellowship and communion, we are denying our true self. Such is the vertical dimension of our personhood. Vertical meaning between us and God, horizontal between us and each other. Our creation in the image signifies that to be human is to be God-related. I cannot understand myself apart from God. But this vertical God-related orientation implies also, in the second place, a horizontal orientation. To be human is to be in relationship with our fellow humans. What this means will make sense in a second. Important sentence. For the God in whose image we are made is God the Holy Trinity. And so the divine icon within each of us is a Trinitarian icon. The God who is essential to my personhood without whom I cannot be genuinely human because I'm created in the image of God, I'm only human because I'm in His image, is a God of mutual love. Not a simple monad, not one person loving himself alone, but three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, loving one another in reciprocal relationship. So what does this mean? Someone might ask, who did God love before creation? There was love between the Holy Trinity, between the three persons of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So because we are an image of that, how we relate to each other and God is very important. The unity of the Trinity, needless to say, is a unique unity. 
and human persons can never be one with the same degree of closeness and reciprocal indwelling as prevails among the three divine persons. If divine being is a relational being, then human being is likewise relational. So if God is relational, since we are created in His image, we are relational. We are not created to live as individuals. That goes against us being created in the image of God. And if it is impossible to speak of the being of God without the concept of communion, then the same concept of kononia is equally essential to all our discourse concerning mankind. If there's one word I want you to remember after this whole series, it's what? Kononia. Communion. What's the church built on? This whole notion of kononia. And we're going to come back to that in two episodes' time. Okay? God is solidarity, exchange, mutual gift, so also is human personhood. Made as we are in the image of the triune God, none of us can realize his or her personhood in isolation. Our faith in God as Trinity means that there can be no true person. You're not a person if you're on your own. No true person unless there are at least two persons, or better still, at least three persons. Communication with each other. Because as an Orthodox Christian, I believe in a God who is Trinity. Therefore, I need you in order to be myself. I need you in order to be myself. I cannot know myself as a person apart from my relationship with you. For I can be genuinely personal only if I love others after the likeness of the Trinitarian God. And if in turn I am loved by them. Personhood is always personal. And there can be no I without a thou, without a you. There can't be an I without a you because we're created in the image of God who is relational. The individual is the human being as competitor. The individual is the human being as competitor. The person, however, is the human being as co-worker. So we're not individuals, we're persons. Not individuals. The individual is the human being as competitor. The person is the human being as co-worker. The whole purpose of our life on earth is that we each develop from an, an individual into a person. And it's precisely communion after the likeness of the Trinity that distinguishes the second from the first. As Christians, we are here to insist on the vital need for unmediated personal encounter, not machine to machine, like we do on our cell phones, but face to face, person to person, prosopon to prosopon, according to the model of God, the Trinity. So because God is relational, us being created in His image means that we are relational. Second thing that He says is growth. It's uh, the Greek word for person. What's growth? What do we mean by growth? Well, this sentence summarizes it. Image is to likeness as starting point to end point or the potential to the realization. So our starting point is image and we're aiming to be, to grow in the likeness of God, to be Christ-like. So we start with image, the potential, and my aim is to be Christ-like. Now this potential I could use or reject. I have the potential to use God's image to be Christ-like. What do I mean Christ-like? Christ is pure. I can be pure through a life in Him. God is love. I can be loving through a life in Him. Absolutely not absolutely loving like Him. But He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. God is um, honest, holy, true. I could try be like that. That's likeness, okay? The fact that I'm created in His image means I have the potential for that. An animal isn't created in His image. So an animal doesn't have the potential to be like God. 
We are created in His image. We have the potential to be like God. So the whole question is, am I using that potential to be Christ-like or no? That's the whole thing. Self-awareness means that we're conscious, self-aware, we're rational, and then freedom, you could read that there. A few quotes from the fathers and then we'll finish. I want to emphasize um, just the last one, St. Gregory of Nyssa, and you could read the rest at home and then we'll finish up. Okay? In Genesis, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. We possess the one by creation. So we possess the image by creation. We acquire the other by free will. So we all have the image of God within us. Every single human being has the image of God. We choose to work towards that likeness through participation in the life of Christ, through the life of the church. So it's up to me. I could either work to get to that likeness or I could not. The potential is in me. So that's why we say the goal of life is to be Christ-like. We acquire the other by free will. So the free will is likeness. In the first structure, image, it is given to us to be born in the image of God. By free will there is formed in us the being in the likeness of God. Let us make man in our image. Let him possess by creation what is in the image, but let him also become according to the likeness. So we have the image, we could become in the likeness. God has given the power for this. If he had created you also in the likeness, where would your privilege be? Where would your privilege be if you're already created to the, to the realization, to the end goal? Why have you been crowned? So where would you receive your crown if there's nothing to achieve? And if the Creator had given you everything, how would the kingdom of heaven be opened for you? But it is proper that one part is given you, while the other has been left incomplete. This is so that you might complete it yourself and might be worthy of the reward which comes from God. So when someone says to us, are you saved? Our answer is, I am being saved, because yes, God died on the cross for me, but I have to participate in that and work towards the likeness of God. Practically, how do I do that? Very simple answer. Through the life of the church. So if I live the life of the church through its liturgy, through its fellowship, its kanonia, through being exposed to its teachings, through serving and through witnessing in Christ, all these tools alongside my personal struggle, my consultation with my confession father and my spiritual guides, I can work towards that likeness. So I thought I would use this part as an excuse to explain something which we generally wouldn't put in a, in a more casual setting. It's a bit, um, bit too, maybe not, but it could be potentially a bit intense. But it's important to emphasize that all humans are created in the image of God, which gives us the potential to be in the likeness of God. When? At the end of our life. It's consummated when we die. Animals are not created in that image, which means they do not have the potential to be like God. Okay? Um, uh, we'll finish there. I have some prospectuses from the Theological College, if anyone's interested. Sort of explains what's happening this year. Um, explains a little bit about the different awards you could choose, undergraduate or postgraduate. Second semester, there'll be units in Iporo. So undergraduate, there's diplomas and advanced diplomas. Postgraduates, there's graduate certificates and graduate diplomas, which can be folded into a master in 2018. Everything is available online and on campus. 
You could find out more at sac.edu.au. If you're really keen, you could live on campus and study full-time. We have about three or four students next year who are living on campus and studying full-time. So they participate in a daily prayer schedule. They attend their classes online. Some people do that for a year and then they go back to work. Some people do it for a bit longer. Okay. We have three visiting lectures, two physically visiting, one online visiting. Okay. First one is George Parsenios, who is from Princeton. He's a Greek Orthodox priest, Father George Parsenios, from Princeton, and he teaches at St. Vlad's. If you know Abraham Mikhail from St. George, he will tell you that he's the best teacher that he's ever had in his whole life. He's really, really good. He's coming here for two weekends in June, end of June, early July, and he is delivering a unit on the writings of St. Paul. Okay, he's really engaging. You have Dr. Carl Enemay, who's an expert in everything art and archaeology. Paula met him in Egypt, so if you want any, have any questions, ask Paula. Expert on everything art, archaeology, church history. He goes to like Der Surian and they have, he finds an icon and he has this epic technique of removing the icon and putting it there and revealing an icon under it without damaging either. Okay, it's really fascinating. So I'm thinking if Lettuce Attend is still running until the second semester, we might get him on a Tuesday night to give us a, like, a nice session with, uh, on that. Then we have Ramaz Mekhail, who has just finished his PhD on the first part of the liturgy. So once that gets released, we might add a few things to the Lettuce Attend handouts or even remove some stuff. So he's going to deliver an, a unit only online on Vespers, Matins, and the Divine Liturgy. It's already proven to be a popular subject. There's already a lot of people have, have enrolled in it. Enrollments close in about a month. Timetable here. Timetable here. They're up here. If you'd like one, come grab one. If you have any questions, feel free to ask. Also, um, an announcement from St. George's and St. Mary's Youth. I'll just pull out the message. They've asked me to announce that... Uh, St. George servants and St. Mary's servants have combined to have an Australia Day barbie, barbecue at Albert Park this Thursday starting at midday. It's open for the whole diocese and not just the two churches. Cost is a $10 donation. Not sure how to word this, okay? Please use Facebook and um, RSVP for catering purposes. So that's on Thursday on Australia Day, okay? We'll hang around if you have any questions, if you want to get a prospectus or if you have any questions about that. Oh yeah, this uh, weekend YIC, it's a back-to-back -back YIC because His Grace Bishop Angelos from the UK is here. So this Saturday, 6.30pm at St. Mark's Church. This Sunday, 6.30pm at Archangel Michael and St. Anthony's Church in Oakley. He's not repeating the same meeting. They're two different meetings, but they're back-to-back. -back. So try your best to get there and get there early to grab a seat because whenever Angelos comes, the church is usually really full. Any other announcements? I know one of those. Yeah. That's it? Okay. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.